Good morning. Please join me as we read Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you as a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This reading was from God's Word. Good morning again, church. We come today to the end of our short series here in the book of Ruth. If it's your first time here with us, don't worry, we'll do a little, a little catch up and, and kind of draw it all together here at the end. 
Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've really enjoyed this, this little book, haven't you? Um, I, I'm a little sad to leave it. It's a, it's a little too, too short of a time with this amazing, amazing story. Ruth, the book of Ruth is truly an, an, an oasis. This story is an oasis in a desert, um, in, a, in a Bible full of stories of violence and running from God and war and misogyny and anger and all of these things, there, here's Ruth. In a time, in a, in a time period where the, tabern- the temple hasn't been built yet, the tabernacle, the priesthood is, is up for grabs. If you've read the book of Judges, the, the priests, the Levites are kind of just, you know, they're mercenaries, spiritual mercenaries doing their own thing. The Psalms still await us. There's no king in Israel. And so it makes us step back and say, where's God? Is there no God? And then Ruth, the book of Ruth, fresh water in this dry and barren land. So what about you? Is your life a a desert this morning or an oasis, an oasis of God's love and faithfulness? A God, a, a, an oasis of God's provision. And so this morning, I want to take us through seven lessons from the book of Ruth. Seven life lessons from the book of Ruth. Don't worry. We'll be out of here by, by bedtime. <laughs> Just give me two, three hours. We'll plug our way through them, all right? We'll move kind of quick. Seven lessons from the book of Ruth that can hopefully make us see life not just as this dry, barren desert, but as the oasis that God intends for our hearts to be. So Ruth chapter 4, if you haven't found it already, but we're going to draw from the whole book a little bit, but but mostly from Ruth chapter 4. Here we go. Lesson number one, never forget the great redemption, the great cost of your redemption. Never forget the great cost of your redemption. We are like, we we should find, in the story, we should find ourselves in Ruth and in Naomi, shouldn't we? We should find ourselves as these people who are desperate, they have nothing. Uh, Ruth is presenting herself as a slave in chapter 2. She's penniless, she's broke, she's destitute, not a lot of hope. Naomi has declared herself bitter. But you know, even on an even deeper level, Chapter 4 especially, we keep hearing these names Elimelech and Malan. We haven't heard those names since chapter 1. And here in chapter 4, you just heard them two more, again, twice in chapter 4. Because you know what the truth is? We're not just Ruth and Naomi in the story, folks. We're Elimelech. We're Malan. We're, We're in danger of being blotted out. We're in danger of being gone, of being forgotten, of being a nobody, of, of, having, of being completely erased. That is what God came to do, is to restore us, redeem us, and restore us, and keep us from being blotted out. Ephesians 2.12 says, Paul says this, remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, you had no hope, and you were without God in the world. That's you. That's me. That's how we're born. That's how every single one of us is born. We're born in need of this great costly redemption. 
Chapter 4 of Ruth reminds us of the great cost. In this little story between Boaz and this other guy, this, this nearer redeemer, so Boaz, is, Boaz can be a redeemer to Ruth and Naomi, but there's another guy who's a closer relative. Are you, are you tracking with that? And early on in the chapter, Boaz uh, goes to, back to the city gate. He's left the threshing floor of chapter 3. He's on his way back into Bethlehem. This guy's on the way out. They meet in the gate. The city gate is where, think, think um, courthouse meets barbershop. That's what the city gate is. It's where we go to do all the business and, and adjudicate, but it's also where we go to gossip and, you know, just talk about life and hang out. So Boaz is on his way in. This other guy's on his way out. The text calls him friend, but in the Hebrew, it literally, we, we really almost can't translate it, but it's a, a term of derision. It's almost like so-and-so or Joe Schmo. This nameless guy comes out, and Boaz stops him, grabs ten other elders, and says, we need to talk. We need to talk. And he offers to this, this so-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, you can redeem the land of Naomi. And this guy says, I'll do it. Of course he will. It's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. I purchased back the land. Probably what's happened, we don't really know for sure, but probably what's happened is Elimelech sold the land to a third party on his way out of town. The famine was bad. Rather than become a slave, he sells his land, and that keeps the family going for a little bit longer. Now, Boaz is saying to Mr. So-and-so, you need to buy that land back. According to the book of Deuteronomy, as a near redeemer, as a kinsman redeemer, you should buy it back and bring it back into the family back into the family. And the guy says, of course I'll do that. That's a no-brainer. That's more money for me, more profit for me. And then Boaz brings in the, the punch, right? Oh, but if you buy the land, you also need to marry Ruth. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> you see what's happened? Suddenly there's no profit in it. If he marries Ruth and creates an offspring with Ruth, the land goes to that offspring. In other words, the, the land goes into the family of Elimelech. Dead Elimelech. It, it becomes his offspring, his land. Not so-and-so's land and not the son of so-and-so's land. No Ruth in the equation, no brainer by the land. Ruth in the equation, I can't do that. He, he actually says, I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to take that risk. Boaz will redeem the land. Do you understand what's happening? Boaz is saying, I will purchase a, a parcel of land that I will gain no profit from. It will do me personally no good. If Ruth and I have an heir, all of the land will transfer into the family of Elimelech and Malan. It will be Obed's land. Costly redemption. Do you see it? How do you see Jesus this morning? Is Jesus just Mr. So-and-so to you, who's constantly asking you, give me your, you know, turn it over to me, give it to me, give me your life, taking, taking, taking. Jesus is just constantly taking, taking, taking. Is that how you see him? Or do you see Jesus as Boaz? Giving, 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 giving. With nothing to gain except, what does Boaz gain in all this, guys? What does Boaz gain? Ruth. 
he gains Ruth with all her baggage. We'll talk about that in a minute. With all her baggage and all her troubles, he gains a bride. He gains love. No money, no land. He's given all that up, but he gets a bride. Can you see that that's what Jesus is after this morning? He wants you. He wants you. He's in love with you. He's in love with you. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Costly redemption. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot, costly redemption. Jesus has redeemed us at great cost to himself. Number two, embrace the salvation of your Redeemer. Know, that God, know the costly redemption, but then embrace your Redeemer. The book ends with this beautiful embrace, Naomi embracing a child. Did you catch it? Ruth gives birth. They take the child and they hand the child to Naomi. And it says they laid, they laid him in her lap or in her bosom, it says, literally. And she took care of him. She clung to him. She embraced him. You see, Obed, little baby Obed is her redeemer. It says, verse, verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. They're not talking about Boaz. They're talking about baby Obed. Baby Obed is Naomi's redeemer. And she clings to him. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restorer of life. Do you see what this child was to her? Everything. Her security, her future, her hope, her purpose in life, her joy, her comfort. Everything the heart desires is wrapped up in this baby that's being handed to her. And as a Christian, our minds go through the course of redemptive history. Genesis 3, God promises us a child born of a woman. Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve sin, don't you know that the offspring will come from a woman and he will crush the head of the enemy? Isaiah 9.6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Are you clinging to the Christ child this morning? Are you embracing your Savior, your Redeemer? Is Jesus your security, your love, your honor, your purpose, your hope, your comfort, your joy, your salvation? Is He your all in all? Is He the restorer of your life? I pray that He is. I pray that you will turn to Him even now. Have you embraced Christ, your Redeemer? Will you? You can. You can do it right now. God, I need a redeemer. Like we sang, we sang in two or three of our songs. All you need, I, I, I got to get better first. I got to figure it out first. I got to do more. No, you don't. All you need to see is your desperate need for a redeemer. That's all you need in this equation. That's all God's asking for 
is simple faith, simple trust. I need you. Without you, I am doomed. I'm a limelech. I'm, I'm wiped out. Without you, I'm a slave. I'm Ruth in the glean field. Without you, I'm bitter Naomi. Without you, I'm nothing. I'm doomed. I'm doomed to separation from God. I'm doomed to my sin. I'm doomed to hell. I'm doomed to the worst of the worst. I need you. Redeem me. Purchase me. And Jesus stands with open arms and he says, yes, all you got to do is ask. (laughs) Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will walk in and I will eat with you and I will drink with you. You'll be my family. Number three, connect your life story to God's redemptive story. How do you see your life this morning? Is your life all about your life? My guess is it is, because I know my life is all about my life. If I looked on your social media feed, would it be mostly just stuff about you? Are you just constantly thinking about what am I going to do next? What am I going to do next? How am I going to jump through the next thing? How am I going to climb on the next step, the next rung of the ladder? Where am I going? What's my five-year plan? Is your life centered around you or is your life connected to something much bigger than you? A lot of Christians talk about how I got to find God's will for my life. No, you don't. You need to find God's will and then connect your life to God's will. Stop making yourself the center of your universe and attaching God to it to sound spiritual. What is God's will? Here's God's will. Ephesians 1, that everything in the universe be brought under the dominion of Jesus Christ. That is God's will. Here's your job, Christian. Attach your life to that. Bring all of your life under the submission of Jesus Christ. Like Pastor Andrew prayed, every relationship, every workplace drama, all of it, just bring it all under Jesus. Connect your story to God's much bigger story. The Bible is a big, huge redemption story. The last, the last word in this, in this book is David. It's meant to point us to a bigger story, the story of a Messiah. God is at work. God, is, God hasn't given up on His people. In spite of all of their craziness, in spite of all their sin in the book of Judges, in spite of all of that, God hasn't quit on them. He's bringing it all back. He's restoring the line of Abraham, and he's going to bring them a Messiah, David. And yet, in the midst of this big story that ends with a genealogy, it ends with a genealogy, and you're going, well, that's boring. Why does it end? I guess that's the credits at the end of the movie, right? No, no. The point of the genealogy is for you to say, oh, God's doing something very big. This is about a nation. And yet, in the midst of this big, huge story, God cares deeply and intimately about three people, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. He cares about them. He cares about the details of their lives. And what they've done, especially Ruth and Boaz and and Naomi, she's figuring it out, right? (laughs) She's a work in progress. But what they've done is they've attached their lives to God's covenant. We know that. We've talked about that a lot already in the book. Ruth has placed herself into the covenant care of God. 
and so has Boaz. And so they don't know what, they don't know they're the great-grandparents of David. They have no idea that that's who they are, do they? But they know God loves them. They know God will take care of them. And they know that in the end, God's up to something really, really big, even though I only see one little smidge of it, right? That's what they know. And they hold on to that. Listen, to find meaning in your life today, connect your story to God's story. Your life alone cannot sustain your life. Your life is not big enough to sustain all, of, all the need you have for meaning and purpose and glory. You need a bigger story than your little story. You have to connect your life to God's life. And let me just say, in a very practical way, right now, in this time and in this place and in this age, how do you do that? By connecting your life to the church. God is at work in human history right now in this age through the church. Do you want to connect your life to the story of God, your story to God's story? Connect your life to the local church. A bunch of ordinary Ruth's and Boaz's and Naomi's trying to figure it out, no idea what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow, right? Number four, you can move beyond your curse with the courage of Christ. Everything is stacked against Ruth, isn't it? It has, it has been made very clear to us. Oh, hey, did you guys know that Ruth is a Moabite? I just wanted to check and see if you knew that. Okay, just making sure. Ruth's a Moabite. Now, if you don't know your Bible, I got to tell you, every story prior to Ruth that involves a Moabite is bad. The Moabites come from the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughters. The Moabites refused to let the nation of Israel pass through their land on their way to the promised land. They refused to be hospitable and kind. The Moabites hired Balaam to pronounce a curse against Israel. The Moabite women seduced the Moabite men and, and, and got them to worship false gods. Every story in your Bible involving a Moabite has been bad, negative. And as a result, God says, Moabites, cursed. To the 10th generation, no Moabites. Don't talk to them. Don't hang out with them. Definitely don't marry them. They are not allowed into the community of Israel. And then comes Ruth, a, a Moabite. Everything stacked against her. And we know she's cursed right from the beginning. Chapter 1, we know she's cursed. Clearly she's cursed. She's got a dead husband and she's barren, right? Clearly God's against her. <laughs> Clearly. And yet this woman stands up in the face of all of that, in the face of you know there was talk, don't you? You know there was talk behind her back. You know there was that water cooler talk. You know there was in the, the city gates, all of that, jibba, 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 about Ruth until she stood up and showed by her courage that she would seek the favor of God, that she placed herself into the covenant community of God and set out to find grace, didn't she? And she starts to say, I'm not going to let the past define me. I'm not going to let my family's past drama say who I am today. I'm going to obey God anyway. And she begins by her courage to literally reverse 
the Moabite story, where her ancestors refused hospitality and kindness, she shows kindness. Where her ancestors were sexually immoral, she is a worthy woman who won't do what her great-great-great-grandmothers did. She stands up in purity and in holiness. She overcomes her cursed identity. We live, under, we live, we live in a cursed world, don't we? Genesis 3, God, God has declared a curse over this world because of sin. In painful toil you will work, Adam. The earth is cursed. God literally says the earth is cursed and all of your work is going to be painful and hard and, and terrible. And every day we face that, don't we? The relationship between men and women has been broken since Genesis 3. Uh, Eve, your desire, the woman's desire will be to control the man, but he will rule over her. In other words, conflict. Men and women constantly fighting for control. Marriages where the husband and the wife are constantly uh, fighting each other, standing up against each other, trying to get what's mine in the relationship. And then in this oasis, in this oasis, we have this beautiful story of this woman and this man who instead of being selfish, instead of fighting against each other to get what's mine, they actually join forces for hesed, for kindness to restore Naomi. That's beautiful. That's curse-reversing stuff, folks. You see, Ruth said, I'm going, to, I'm going to live out of my new identity. I'm going to live out of my new identity as a covenant child of Yahweh, and then therefore I will make choices from that identity. I will make the choice to love. I will make the choice to be hospitable. I will make the choice to bless. I will make the choice to be holy. I will make the choice to not fight against men, but to work with men in order to bring kindness and love and to restore others. How about you? How about me? Are we wallowing in the mud? I can't do it. I can never do it. You don't know my parents. You don't know my grand. My family never did that. My family never showed love and affection like that. I was never discipled. I never got to... Listen, stand up. Rise up. Stand up. Show some courage. God is with you. Move forward. Move forward. I'm not trying to just make this some pep talk, but listen, you're, you're looking at a guy who struggles with all this same stuff. Every day, I just want to get under the covers and turn off the lights and go back to sleep. But at some point, we've got to roll out and we've got to say, God is with me. <laughs> Let's take a step, even if it's just a baby step. Let's take a step. Number five, you can live a life of kindness. You can live a life of kindness. Hey, listen, kindness in, kindness out. Kindness in, kindness out. Have you received kindness from God? Four of us have. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's, let's do this. Hands up. Have you received kindness from God? Woo, praise the Lord. Look around, look around. That's better. Okay, listen. Kindness in, kindness out. Kindness in, kindness out. 
when I know that God is for me, when I know that Christ is for me, when I know that his chesed, his covenant, loyal, faithful love is on my side, I can risk, I can walk out, I can be kind to others, even people that it's hard to be kind towards. Boaz goes way beyond law-keeping in this story, doesn't he? Listen, chapter 4 starts with him sitting in the city gates and taking the Redeemer law from Deuteronomy and the Leverett marriage law from Leviticus and weaving them together like a master lawyer and saying, I'm going to do it all. But you know what? He didn't have to do any of it, actually. If you read Deuteronomy and Leviticus, he doesn't actually have to do any of this. He could have left Ruth in the glean field from chapter 2, right? When she asked to to work amongst his women and be safe and have the sheaves, he could have said, well, that's not the law. I'm going to stick with the law. He could have said, oh, the law says a brother has to marry Elimelech or Malan's widow. I'm not actually a brother. I'm like a distant uncle. I don't have to do it. He could have said all of that. He could have been like Mr. So-and-so. And picked and and chose what he wanted to do legally. But instead, he shows kindness. He shows loyal, faithful, kind love to Ruth, but especially to Naomi. He's restoring Naomi and, and listen, Elimelech, Milan. Don't don't, Don't lose them in the story. Twice in chapter four, Boaz says, I'm doing this for Elimelech. I am restoring the name of the dead. Verse, verse 5, and then in 9 and 10. Verse 10, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Don't, 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 let, don't let that slip by you. Elimelech doesn't deserve this. Milan, he doesn't deserve this. You left. You left Bethlehem, right? Chapter 1, going got tough, tough got going. You left the promised land, man. You bugged out. You left the family. And then when you got to Moab, you let your kids marry Moabite women, which is illegal. Restore their names? Restore Elimelech's name? Nah, it, he can just fade from history for all I care. You see, Boaz could have said all of that, couldn't he? He could have said, let the dead be the dead. Praise God, Jesus did not look at our souls and say, let the dead be the dead. <laughs> Y'all blew it. I gave you everything. I, I, I gave you everything and you blew it. You blew it, you bunch of ingrates. Praise God that Jesus does not speak to us that way. Amen? That he is kind. Just as a side note, let me just say this. The purpose of your marriage is not for you to be in love. That is not the primary purpose of your marriage. The primary purpose of your marriage is to love outwardly. Ruth and Boaz, we haven't, Mark and I haven't done a lot about Ruth and Boaz as a marriage tale. I'm going to do it right now for two minutes. <laughs> Ruth and Boaz as a marriage tale. What are they both after? 
not just each other. It's not, a, it's not a romance in the traditional sense of the word. Ruth wants to save Naomi. She wants to save Elimelech's line. Boaz wants the same thing. And so they come together in masculinity and in femininity. They come together to restore others, to love others. Their marriage is missional. Do you see it? It's not just this great fairy tale romance where these two people fall in love and they live happily ever after, the end. In this day and age, the way you restored a family was through marriage and childbearing. There was no such thing as singleness in the Old Testament. You got married and you made babies. If you didn't get married and make babies, that meant God was against you somehow. But listen, folks, in our day and age, is that how we restore each other? Through marriage and making babies? No. Those things are a gift. They're wonderful. They're from God, and we celebrate them. But listen, ladies, your greatest calling in life is not to be a mother. Your greatest calling in life is to be Christ-like and to make disciples, to be kind, to restore a soul. That's your greatest calling. And you can do that from marriage. You can do it from singleness. You can do it from a bunch of kids. You can do it from no kids. We do it through the church. Okay, rabbit trail over. Lesson six, trust the unseen hand of God. Trust the unseen hand of God. We've been saying this throughout. There's no miracles in this story, but there's also no coincidences. God has been at work from the beginning to the end, hasn't he? Even here in chapter 4, there's another, there's another little wordplay where, you know, Boaz is coming into town and he stops in the gate and it, and it reads sort of like, just then, it just so happened, at that moment, Mr. So-and-so was walking out of town. Coincidence? No. Boaz and Mr. So-and-so need to have a talk. And so God had them meet at the gate. God has been in control of this story from beginning to end. And Christian, listen to me. God is in control of your life from beginning to end. I know it doesn't always seem like it. It may not always feel like it, but He is. We live in a day and age, folks, where we think and believe that we need to know everything. You can turn on the news. The news is on what now? Like 16 different channels, 24-7. On your device, on your phone, on your iPad, whatever, you, you're, you, here's what you're doing all day, right? Scrolling, scrolling, news, news, news. Oh, no, that's terrible. Oh, my, that's wonderful. Oh, no, that's terrible. Oh, no, that's wonderful. Your brain is not meant to do that, folks. Your emotions are not meant to do that, to bounce back and forth from some school shooting across the country to some amazing story. Your, your heart is not meant to be pinballing all over the place like that. You're not meant to know everything. Right now, one of Satan's biggest uh, attacks against us is he, it's the same one from Genesis 3. Don't you want to know everything God knows, Eve? And so, 
the tree of knowledge and good and evil at my fingertips. The tree of knowledge and good and evil on my remote. God's in control. He's providentially working. Do you trust this? Just as practical advice, turn off the news. Stop scrolling. Let your brain take a break. Let your emotions take a break. You don't need to know everything. You're not God. Sorry. (laughs) Hate to be the guy to break it to you. (laughs) You're not God. And lesson seven, find hope. Find hope in God's great restoration of all things. What a wonderful end to this story, isn't it? What a wonderful end to this story. You see, listen, we've been using the word redemption a lot. Ruth, a redemption story. I'm going to give you the next chapter, restoration. God redeems us to restore us. You ever watch these shows um, like Flea Market Flip? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like on the HGTV channel and, and they go out and they buy old junky stuff from the flea market and then they take it back and what do they do with it? They flip it. They put in time and money and sweat and tears and they sand it down and they put new, new hardware on it and they turn, it into, they turn the dresser into a baby changing table or, or into something to hold dishes or whatever and, it, and then it becomes more beautiful. It's even better than it was before. First, they have to redeem it. They got to buy it. They got to buy it out of the flea market, out of the yard sale, and then they restore it. And in the middle there, they have this vision of what it will be, don't they? They see it there in the junk pile. They see it, in, they see it there behind the table and some guy, you know, some guy's there. They're like, oh, I'll give you five bucks for it. Okay, yeah, five bucks. It's worth five bucks. And they get it and they take it. And in that show, they take it and a little bit of paint and a little bit of love and a little bit of vision and they sell it for $255, right? They restored it. They made it better. See, Ruth is restored, isn't she? Everything in chapter 1 that she set aside for the covenant promise of God, her family, her land, it's all been given back to her in the end, hasn't it? She's got a new land. She's got a new family. And in case you're tempted to say, well, yeah, she earned that. Ruth earned it. Okay, let me present to you Naomi. Is Naomi restored by the end? Did she earn it? No. (laughs) No. And neither did Ruth. Neither did Ruth. Naomi, she gets her life renewed, verse 15, by little Obed. The The women say to her, Ruth has been seven sons to you. Did you catch that? Ruth has been like seven sons to you. Do you know what they're saying? Perfection. God has given you more and beyond all you could ask or think. You lost two sons, but God gave you seven sons in Ruth. He gave you, that that was a Hebrew idiom for the perfect family. Job had seven sons. It's the perfect family. You see, God's in the business of restoring us, isn't he? 
We could talk all day about how he's restoring Abraham's family. Abraham's family, Lot, Lot's descendants, the Moabites, Ruth, Ruth restoring the Lot line back into the kingdom of God. The Judah story, the Tamar story, which gets brought up again. God's restoring Judah again through Boaz. Ruth and Boaz are the anti-Judah and Tamar, aren't they? Same result, God's at work, but God is restoring this community. And again, the very last word of the book of Ruth, David David, kingdom. We're meant to land on kingdom. A king is coming. A king is coming. A king who will make all things new. They're living in a time when there was no king in Israel. There was no king in Judah. And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. But we land on David because there's a king coming, isn't there? And our king is not David. Our king is King Jesus. And King Jesus will do an even greater restoration project than David ever did. You see, Jesus is going to come and He's going to wipe every tear from your eyes. Jesus is, is going to come and He's going to reverse every sadness in your life. Jesus is going to come and He's going to say, everything that you gave up for the gospel, everything that you gave up for the kingdom, I will restore it a hundred times over. That's what He says to you. And do you know that that kingdom is alive and well in your heart right now, Christian? Yeah, we're not feeling it and seeing it physically around us yet. That day's coming. But right now, that kingdom is in our hearts. We can love. We can have joy. We can have hope. We can have courage. Why? Because the restorative kingdom of Christ is inside of us. And we live in the hope of one day when Christ will return physically, bodily, and build His kingdom here on earth and rule us in grace and kindness and love and has said will rule the world. Dare to hope, Christian. Dare to hope. Dare to live this way. You see, every other religion says, let your present determine your future. But Christianity says, no, no, no. Let your future determine your present. Can you see your future? Can you live out your future? Live, live your eternity now. <laughs> you see, you hear what I'm saying? Live your eternity now. And when it comes to people, when it comes to your spouse, when it comes to your friends, when it comes to your kids, when it comes to your coworkers. Don't just see them as a piece of junk behind the table at the flea market. Catch a vision. Catch a vision of what they will be. Can you see it? Can you see what he will be? That, that husband that's driving you crazy? Can you see what he will be in the kingdom of heaven? That wife who's letting you down? Those kids? Those parents? those friendships, can you see it? Can you see what they will be? And can you embrace them the way Christ embraced them and says, one day, and that one day is today. That one day is today. Dare to hope. Let's pray. God of hope, give us a vision let us see the future. 
Let us see you, Jesus, standing before us, every tear wiped away, every sadness undone. Behold, I make all things new, is what you say. And that newness is in us. It's inside of us. Help us to catch that vision today, God. May we see each other that way. May we see what you're doing in people's lives and their hearts and their minds. May that encourage us, restore us, renew our lives. We look forward to that day, Jesus, when you return. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Until then, may we live from this living hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.